I think that relationship matters a lot. Otherwise, it's a bunch of people sitting in a room making art that they think is pretty. Uh, I think if it's not tied into the sales process and what they're hearing on the floor, it's, it's dead on arrival. See, that's what I'm talking about. It's hard not to dance without it. There you go. All righty. Welcome to this edition of the Black Line Podcast. And I'll tell you, um, I know I say this a lot when we have guests that I've been looking forward to this, but I have been looking forward to having this person on the show for a, for a very long time. We almost had her scheduled, then it fell through because everyone's busy, but, but we got her back. Uh, she is a VP of marketing for HubSpot. She is the host of one of the most popular marketing podcasts out there, The Growth Show. Uh, and, and probably more importantly, uh, she's just one of the best people that I've ever known in the world. So um, Megan, why don't you introduce everybody um, to who you are and, and answer the question, what do you do in your free time? Oh my goodness. Well, we should just end it right there. Like stop the podcast. Thank you. That was incredibly nice. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm VP of marketing at HubSpot. Um, I've been there for just shy of 10 years seen the company really grow. Um, and you know, it's, it's been a fascinating journey. And I think this year kind of tops the cake as far as how fascinating it's been. Um, in my spare time, I spent a lot of time with my dog, um, who you might hear on this podcast, cause he does not get the memo about being quiet during the workday. Um, and you know, I'm just trying to sort of like make it through this year like everybody else. There you go. Well, 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 dogs are welcome. Dogs are more than welcome. And if anybody follows Megan on Twitter, you have, you will see if you, if you have, or you do, you will certainly uh, get to meet her dog through Twitter. Um, I've got a whole bunch of questions for you. I trying to get this thing narrowed down into a single episode yeah. is going to be hard, but, but I'm going to start off with, with what I think is the number one question that anybody that, that deals with inbound marketing is asking today. Why can't I simply post three blogs a week and have qualified leads pour in? Why can't I do that anymore? Uh, it won't work is the short but answer. Why? So there's a couple of reasons it won't work. Um, so yes, when, when we sort of first started this thing out, volume was, was a great thing because every piece of content you put on the internet is like a front door right back into your website and somebody is going to find that front door so it's just in that frame of thinking like more of course is good but in modern seo and the way that content is sort of organized and consumed on the internet today you may actually end up cannibalizing your own search traffic so um you know and we've learned this from our own mistakes we at one point had 15 posts on the benefits of social selling and they all ranked, but they all ranked in a mediocre way. So what we ended up having to do, and, and nobody intended to start to start off with 15 posts on social selling, but you know, content accumulates over time. People have an idea. They think it's the first time they've ever had that idea. They don't check um, and they create a new original piece of content on it. But um, it is much better to put those calories into having the single best piece of content on the internet for a given topic and then 
have all your supplemental posts take different angles at that, but, but link back into that one canonical piece. Um, because that is how um, content gets organized on the internet today. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be stealing traffic from yourself, spinning your wheels, and uh, it just won't work. You know, this is going to sound sarcastic, but it's actually not. I think for the first time, I actually understand what a pillar post is or what a pillar page <laughs> is. Um, and and the great thing about it was he actually didn't even use that term, but it I, I don't know. I'm remember I'm the sales guy here, so yep. I'm a I'm a little bit slower than most. It takes me a while to to, to understand those things. Um, yeah, gosh, so you've been at HubSpot for ten years. Um, you know, not not so much how has HubSpot changed. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. Sure. But but how is this whole world of of content of content and content marketing? What like what what's the Without using the word SEO, let's 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 go with that. Um, how has the nature of content, the role of content, what 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 are the biggest changes that you've seen? Oh well, there have been a couple of bigger themes that I've seen over the years. Uh, I think the internet itself has changed. The way that we consume content on the internet has changed. I mean, we've gone from largely desktop to largely mobile based. We've gone from what was a pretty distributed internet um, to a largely consolidated internet. Um, and you said, don't say SEO, but 70% of the traffic today goes through, you know, one of two companies, Google or Facebook. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't know the science or math behind it, but I would wager that Amazon is probably up there too. Uh, and so we've got these giants that are really uh, the, the primary conduits, the superhighways um, of how most information gets discovered. And so when that happens, it means every time they make a change, the ripple effects are massive. So um, you really, in today's content strategy, have to very much understand those sort of keepers of, um, of, of all information online and know when they shift and sort of shift and evolve with them. So content strategy has, it's almost continuous change. It's, it's almost, it hasn't stopped changing since I first joined HubSpot. And partially it's because every, every change in the way people consume content is massive in scale today. And, and I think in internet's past, little changes from individual uh, from, you know, search engines back then, they may not have made as big of an impact as they do today. So like, and no, that's, that's super interesting, Megan. So one of the things that like I, I've been thinking about a lot recently is this, this concept of like the attention economy. Mm -hmm. And this was really brought up in the social dilemma. Um, but I think attention is it, it, like, and I know you've, historically um, worked with a number or advised some startups. I think, uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you, you came to HubSpot through the, through the performable acquisition. Um, and being a startup today is, is just much harder to play in that game of, of the attention economy because you're right, there is just so much out there. And if you're not focusing on you know, SEO, pillar pages, but I, I'd love your opinion on, 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 on how you compete 
if you are an emerging company in today's, uh, in today's world. Yeah, I think, so two thoughts. One is there's also change that benefits you too, right? There are new channels popping up all the time. There are new, um, new ways that people discover information. And so I would be an early adopter, um, at least in some experimental way to some of those newer channels, if they fit your audience and try to play around with that. But I think the, the more foundational advice that I would give is you need work that is infrastructural in nature. Like you do need to do work for SEO. You have to, even if you feel like it is a giant hill and everybody got there before you, you have to start with that how-to content and that really search-friendly content on your site because that is compounding. And if you start today, that will grow over time. But then you can't wait for that. You also have to have your sort of short-term um, flash in the pan, in high impact uh, pieces of content. And that's where things like strong point of view and brand and create, creative angles on things, that's where those can break through and give you a leg up um, in a way that, um, that you know, your competitors or the more established companies can't quite predict. Uh, so I think you need to do both. Have that steady flow of really infrastructure type content and then put some focus into what do we stand for that's different in the world? How do we tell that message in the most compelling way and, and take some risks there? So a few years ago, and I, and I love you write articles that you, you frequently write articles that, that, that talk about, you know, sea shifts. And, and a few years ago, you wrote a piece around how content, you know, the, the nature of what content was doing was, you know, was changing. And, and you brought up in that piece, the whole point of how much traffic goes through Google and Facebook. When you, when you add on top of that, that increasingly Google and Facebook are, I, I don't know, it's probably too much to say that they're not solving for the user, but they're increasingly solving for themselves and the whole idea of, yeah. you know, time on site and, 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 and it, I mean, I think unquestionably it's all driven more and more to drive to some advertising component um, for monetization. So when you take that and you combine it with, with, you know, Brian Halligan, you know, multiple times talking about the, you know, the basis and the advantage of inbound is, um, you know, traditional, you have to outspend your competition with inbound, you get to, you know, it's about outthinking your competition. Mm -hmm. um, is that still true today? Because, or, or are we back in the game that, um, we, we had somebody on who talked about, you know, SEO is this great opportunity because it's free traffic. And he went on to explain to us how he had 40 people in his SEO department. Yeah, it's free like a puppy, um, right? Right. I was trying to, I'm like, yeah, that's a very 40 people. That's a really interesting uh, definition of free, if you will. I mean, are we, are we back in that aspect where, um, Hey, that was good. Well, and I'm not saying that that takes away you no, know, the relevancy, yeah, of no, it, but are we back really... into, you know, it's back to outspending. Yeah. I mean, we, it's a really valid point. We, we advertise at, at HubSpot and I think, I think you do more so I think than back then you need a mix, right? Uh, and advertising can help boost those sort of uh, what I was talking about before, like the flash in, in the pan, like uh, risk that you take to try to capture attention while you're sort of building up this foundational uh, inbound content strategy. I do think that like you're, 
you need to operate within the confines of what you can do budgetarily, right? And if you've got no budget, you're going to be forced to lean into the most inbound approach that you can and do the best you can with that. If you've got a lot of budget, you can do some sort of a mix. But either way, I think that you've got to figure out where you're, you still have to find that way that you can outsmart your competition, right? You can't just play the exact same game that they do. Um, if they're running ads and, you know, you can't have your ads appear in the exact same network looking exactly the same. Uh, if they've got a content strategy, you've got to find a way to differ from them. And so I think it still really is a, a game of how do you outthink the others in the field and figure out how you can be different. Um, but certainly because of some of the ways that the internet has changed, I think uh, budgets do help. I've got Jay Conrad Levinson's next book. Does anybody know who Jay Conrad Levinson is? He's the guy who wrote Guerrilla Marketing. Oh. We need guerrilla inbound marketing. Yeah. Right. I think, I think that, you know, as, as you were talking, I couldn't, yeah. I was, I was having major PTSD back to my pre-internet days. Um, and, you know, where, where, where we talked about, uh, you know, one, one of the things that I remember is, is in, in guerrilla marketing, that's where the whole idea of, of bridging offers came from. And then, you know, there, there were two types of direct mail. There's direct response, direct mail, but then there was also direct mail that you used as a bridge. And, and yeah. in many ways, when you first had websites, that was one of the great guerrilla tactics was you used direct mail and then you bridged back to a website or you bridged back to an offer on, on eight, 800 numbers, if anybody listening remember, remembers those things. And I think that, I think one of the things that's interesting to what you brought up, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I really want to hear this because I know that HubSpot has always had an amazing content engine, but they've also had this amazing, in, in both size, scale, and, and, and focus sales team. Yeah. And, and, and they combine that. And, and so, you know, we talk about no budget, yet no budget, like no budget, no growth. I think we could probably agree on that if it's literally mm -hmm. no budget. But how many people have 15 salespeople and say, well, I've got no budget for X? And it's right. like, well, no, you've got 15 salespeople that are all making touches and doing things. And, and, and in many ways, they're kind of your, your spiders, if you will. Yeah. You don't like that same how-to content that is good for search that maybe doesn't rank initially. It's also extraordinarily right. good process. for your sales mm -hmm. team to be connecting and building that up and bridging that. So how and do you guys, and, and, and how do you view that, that whole aspect of how, of unlocking that that sales team um, leveraging this dormant asset in so many places of the content that's there. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I, I will say too, you know, if a piece of content is going to fail or an ad campaign is going to fail, your sales team knows long before you do. You know, like they they actually know what the questions are that are coming up and and whether something's going to resonate. And so, whenever we start off even messaging for a campaign, they're often the first people outside of customers that we talk with um, because they're just, they're just in the, they've got the nose to the groundstone on it. So um, we try to do as much like planning with them about what content they're going to need and how can we repurpose and repackage content for them and for a broader audience. So um, for example, this summer we started doing kind of this uh, adapt series. It was kind of a standing series of really, uh, really easy to pull off because it was 
it was like unpolished. It was a lot of conversations like this and we would just tackle a different topic every week. But the thing was the the needs and the interests of buyers were changing so fast this summer because one week they were really worried about bringing their sales teams remote. And then the next week they had figured that out and they didn't care about remote content anymore. And they were on to how do I do planning for next year in uncertain economic times. So having those conversations with our sales team allowed us to very quickly pull up some programming that actually would resonate. Um, and then the sales team could then take that and not only invite people to it, but, but repurpose it down the line. Um, so I think that relationship matters a lot. Otherwise it's a bunch of people sitting in a room making art that they think is pretty. Uh, I think if it's not tied into the sales process and what they're hearing on the floor, it's, it's dead on arrival. I think that's a super interesting point. Cause I think you, you do see that a lot where decisions are made in, in a little bit of a vacuum and then your sales team doesn't do anything with the content that you've created. Whereas now they're hugely motivated to use the content or strategy that you've, that you've ultimately created. I'll tell you like one example, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot over the last year about this idea of like your business should be a flywheel. Um, we think that like, typically people think about their businesses as a sort of a funnel where people kind of come in at the top and then you kind of have customers and as an output at the end, but instead we think your business should be more cyclical. It should use customers uh, and leverage their interest to bring in more customers. Now you just saw how hard that is for me to explain. Uh, and so we, we put, made a lot of content about the flywheel um, and uh, heard very quickly from our sales team that like they loved the concept, but it wasn't coming up on sales calls. Uh, and it wasn't coming up on sales calls because it was a, it was a heady kind of um, conceptual thing. And they were dealing with people who had real challenges and wanted to talk about the thing that was on their mind at that moment. So hearing that feedback from them was critical because we could have gone on forever talking about the flywheel because we love the concept and we still love the concept. But what, what happened was they said, hey, it's not flying on sales calls. And we had a conversation with them and said, okay, well, what about this idea of friction? Does friction fly on sales calls? Do people feel friction in their um, marketing and sales process? And the sales was like, yeah, every time. We talk about friction every single time and how you need to reduce the amount of friction in your marketing and sales pipelines. And so we're like, great, that's flywheel. So you need to talk about friction. We need to start talking about friction and force and how to minimize the former and maximize the latter. And that will click more. And that content started doing better. And so just as sort of an insider example, um, they really helped us to refine our messaging and the topics that we pursue. I know a lot of companies when they initiate that, they struggle getting feedback from salespeople. And I've been in, you know, I've, I've been brought in to get it from salespeople. And you're like, okay, guys, what are the, you know, and, and, and it's funny because salespeople are talk, talk, and I'm a salesperson, right? But they're talk, 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 bitch, 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 bitch. What about, and then, and then you put them in a room. You're like, okay, guys, what objections are you having? What they're like, oh no, I think everything's great. Um, yeah. You know, how do you get them? Like once you get them going, it's like you, you, like I remember uh, there were, when when my daughter was four years old, there was we we were having dinner with the family and and the boy who was about four years old at the same time, like was really frustrated at the early part of dinner because he couldn't get her to talk. 
But man, once you got my daughter talking and at the end of the dinner, he's like, I can't get her to stop. Like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that with yeah. salespeople, if you will. My daughter, by the way, is going to kill me if she listens to the show. <laughs> Do you remember when um, the topic was that turned her into? Oh, no, it was just that, like she wouldn't start talking. But once you got her, like once yeah. she started talking, it didn't matter what it was. She just, you know, you she was four at the time. To keep she, going. Now, now it's marine biology. But but um, back then it was anything. Oh, yeah, she's it, anyway. Well, we'll get into a whole. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, so salespeople getting them to, to initiate that feedback in that, in that, you know, in that helpful way can be difficult once they start it, then, you know, they're never going to stop. How do you get it started? I know there's a lot of people listening that, that, that would love to know how did you guys get that? How did you get that flywheel going? You know, I think uh, a lot of it comes down to understanding what their days are like and starting from a place that is natural to them, right? So we use uh, we use a tool called Gong internally that allows you to record sales calls so that you can listen to them afterwards and sort of understand how the conversation went and learn from it. And, um, you know, it's a sales tool, but marketers have started using it as a way of understanding what's working and what's not on those calls and in our messaging. And so if I went to, you know, my favorite sales rep and said, Hey, what are your obstacles? How are like, what do you need? They might struggle to tell me in that moment. But if I went to them and said, Hey, let's talk about this call you just had that was, you know, a competitive rip out call and it didn't go well or did go well. Like, can you tell me about that? And giving that familiar starting place that can then expound out to, okay, what are the bigger themes that are at play here? What are the major obstacles that keep coming up again and again? But yeah, you know, you gotta remember, or I gotta remember that sales reps are in calls all day long. And it can, I imagine it can feel like a blur at the end of the day. And it can be hard to sort of get that perspective and step back. So having a little bit of empathy for what their day looks like and starting from a familiar place, I think can help. Love that advice. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that that if you start off that conversation and you're asking, okay, so what do you need? What's this or that? You're, you're really not going to get a lot. You're putting the work um, on them. I, I, I think salespeople are a lot like pumps, right? You got to prime the pump a little bit. Listen to some of the recordings of calls. Come in and say, hey, we're hearing this. We're thinking that. How would this help you? How would this impact? Yeah. Um, and, and then, you, you know, especially early on, I think it, it's got to be a lot of listening. If, if, if someone brings up something and then, well, no, no, that doesn't make sense because that doesn't fit our brand guidelines or, 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 you know, sometimes I think yeah. it's meant well, but marketing begins to defend why they were doing something. Salespeople hear that and they're like, okay, they're not interested. So I think it's a lot of empathy and, 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 you know, really just listening on the early end, you've got to demonstrate that investment into your sales team um, to, to be able to get yeah. that return. And you can go to them with a hypothesis, Doug, like you can say, hey, you know, I had this idea, this theory that like this call would go easier or we would, you know, combat this misperception if we did this. Like, what do you think about that? But it's it's a little bit like, um, oh, you know, the advice around friendships where like if you got a friend who's really hurting and the last thing that they want to hear from you is what can I do to help because it puts the work on them to tell you how to help them, right? And I think it's similar with sales and with any relationship at work, 
where you're just, you want to minimize the amount of barriers in the way to help you guys connect. Um, and so going in with a hypothesis or going in with an observation about something that you've seen, you've heard on one of those sales calls, I think that's a good place to start. Uh, yeah, that, that's a super interesting point. I Because like, when you relate it back to like people's personal lives, mm -hmm. sometimes it is a little bit disingenuous when people are like, hey, how can I help? Um, versus, hey, I've observed this. Maybe this is something you should think about. Yeah. Or something you should try. Not that, it, not that it's always disingenuous, but you're right. It, well, because what's you know, the answer every time be. that happens? The answer every time anybody has ever asked me, wow, you seem like you're overwhelmed. How can I help? I'm always like, I don't know. I'm good. Like there's, ne there's never a time where I'm like, here's exactly how you can help. And I've already planned it all out. And here's the folder you can use. Like it just doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we may sometimes think that we are extending an olive branch, but we need to go a little further. Yeah, and it, it it's interesting because you were talking. I don't know why today I seem to be thinking in in, in television shows or or past experience. I see pictures, but I I have a picture of, of the show Mash, and mm -hmm. and I remember there was something you know where the frontline troops were. You know there was something with the troops, and there were colonels in this talking about other things, and and there was almost a like the frontline troops they, they didn't care, and and the, they didn't care didn't mean that they don't care that they were apathetic. It was either hey look you guys decide what you need us to do. We're ready to go once yeah. you know where you want us to go or like, so that's one. And it's like, Hey, I don't care which hill you want me to get. I, I, I don't care which positioning statement you want me. I can go with whatever positioning statement you, you yeah. want. Just, just let me know which one. Yeah. Um, or there's also, you know, in fairness, a lot of what's happening in marketing is trying to create order out of chaos and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and bringing, um, you know, standardization in and scalability in sales is about at the end of the day, sales is all about one off. So there is a natural disconnect between all the things that are going on here. And, and part of what you need to be able to do to be a successful rep is uh, there's a, there's a bit of aloofness in every good rep because they've got a tremendous ability to ignore a whole lot of noise that would, I think, freeze other people. Yes. And so when you come to them and you're, you're, you're asking them to feed in, they don't care. And again, I don't mean that, that they're apathetic. They don't care in that, Hey, whichever you guys decide, I'm fine. I'm running out here. But when you come to them with a hypothesis, genuine, and yeah. you, and, and you finish, I think, I think like the, like the big takeaway for me, I know, um, you know, there, I come from sales, so I have an easier time in talking to them, but I realize I would be so much better off and I'd get so much more interaction when I, when I, if I finished my question with, what do you think about that? Yeah. How would that, how would that impact you? Um, or if I really want to kind of build in some buy-in, how would that help you? And yeah. before you know it, you know, you start getting some of the positive responses to it and that begins to build up that momentum. And, and, and I think that's a great point. Marketers have to look at it when they're looking for that feedback from salespeople that, that there's a marketing exercise. You, you know, you wouldn't just go out to the market with your message and go, okay, I'm done. You'd, you know, you'd go through that whole awareness and consideration part. I think that that's a fascinating. Um, and the same that, goes by the way for, for product and for pricing. I think that conversation, product needs to talk more with sales as well. 
um, to ask that same question. Hey, like, hey, if I added this feature, if I took this feature away, what would that mean for you? Um, and use that for to fortify their plans. Okay, so let's talk about the other side of it for marketers. Because if marketers listen to salespeople all the time, every business would go out of business very, very quickly. Because um, salespeople are not always right. And what salespeople want is not always in, in the right direction. So how do you kind of break apart that what I'm listening for, but then where am I, where am I still charting that course? How do you balance that out? You know, I think it's about, there's a, there's a difference in time scale for where a marketer focuses versus where a sales rep focuses. So a marketer is thinking about how do I build a message that's going to help carry us over the next few years. And a sales rep is thinking about that call in front of them on their calendar. And that's where I sometimes see a disconnect where, you know, as a marketer, we want to talk about HubSpot's about growing better and, and, you know, painting this huge digital transformation story and making it much more grandiose um, because we are shooting for the fences. We, we want people to see us as an aspirational brand. We want to be an aspirational brand and we want to get people to dream about that future. But a sales rep is talking to someone who is trying to make their numbers for that month. And so their approach is much more practical. Uh, it is much more real. It is much more uh, in tune with the urgent needs of the buyer. We're more in tune with the, I would say, longer term aspirations of the buyer. And you have to connect those two dots. Because if you don't, then you're, if sales follows a marketing practice that is entirely aspirational and doesn't really pay it off in tactics on the call, that call is going to fail uh, because that person's house is on fire and they need to, they need to that immediate help now before they can think about the future. And if sales is only focused on how to solve that buyer's problem today, then they're not planting any seeds for, in our world, it's, it's, longevity and cross-sell and upsell and uh, true differentiation. If they're just saying, hey, I can solve that problem that you have, that's not necessarily any different than how competitor X, Y, or Z can solve it. So I think, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I think a lot about those timescales and how uh, part of our work in the middle is to connect the dots between those two, to solve problems today for buyers and not ignore that, but then to also work with sales so that there is some sort of a thread that they can pull into a longer term relationship. So we had Marcus Andrews on um, a few episodes ago. Um, yeah. and, and, and Marcus talked to us about um, the whole idea of the launch. And we started talking a little bit about narrative design and things like that. And so I'm actually looking at a post that you wrote, five ways go-to-market strategies will change in the post-pandemic economy. And as you're talking, I'm actually seeing this post differently than, than I saw it initially. So um, A, I would encourage everyone to read it because there's great content, but tell me if I'm right or wrong, let's, let's bring a real world example. I think sales has a challenge that they live in the micro yes. on, a, on a regular basis. Marketing lives in the macro. Um, I think if sales was left to its own, you know, we'd be battling around margins and, 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 and there'd be very, very heavy duty commoditization because at, at the end of the day, salespeople need to solve the symptom because the symptoms what's generating the pain, mm -hmm. but, but the values underlying the cause. So there's a frame 
that that micro fits in. And salespeople typically don't have the time to, to maybe tell that story. So that, that, that the flywheel, like I don't have the yeah. time to, Hey, I'm not hitting, you know, we, we need to increase our growth rate by 15%. Well, let me tell you, exactly. when we looked at that, we're thinking about a flywheel. Have you thought about a flywheel? Like, Let's go back yeah. to university for a moment. And, right. yeah. But, but yet if the flywheel conversation isn't there, then there's actually no context for why is, you know, HubSpot solution better than this solution or that solution or the other solution. And so, um, the other thing too, that's interesting, I think in general about salespeople, there are certainly very large exceptions. Um, good salespeople are, are, are technicians. Um, they get thought of differently. They, they get thought of as communicators and they're typically good at communicating, but they're technicians in, in that sense, not necessarily storytellers. And so now I'm reading this post on the five ways to go to market. By the way, it also addresses some of the things from an academic perspective where I might've said, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Sure, yeah. This, this lays out, like I remember the grow better. I remember, you know, the adapt. I remember, you know, all these things started happening. And then you came out and you said, five ways to go to market strategies will change in, post -pan in the post-pandemic economy. Um, outside selling to inside selling, offline marketing, online marketing. That, it's like, okay, wait a second. You just laid out the entire story for me as a salesperson to say, this is where my micro story fits. Like yeah. I'm, fi I'm fighting the battle star right now. I'm, I'm in the, the X fighter yeah, you know, yeah. hitting, hitting the battle star. But, but if that's all we're fighting for that, that doesn't sustain, I need to connect it to the force. If you will, I need to connect it to the broader story. Let me ask you how much when you wrote that post, how much of that post was designed so that salespeople could use that to share the story, to give the background so that the worth of that micro conversation was unlocked? Am I, am I seeing something that's not there or am I on point? No, I think you're on point. Um, your movie references continue to amaze. So I appreciate that too. Uh, no, I, I mean, look, I, I don't think it was masterminded that way, but I think there is this there is this dance that that we as marketers do when we're with sales, when we're kind of piecing these stories together, that we try to do a lot of contextualizing. We try to um, connect the dots of like observations that are happening all around us. And I think that right now, um, you know, sales is a very hard job in that they have to both help buyers prospects with their immediate needs but they also help have to because things are changing so fast they do have to give some sort of a sense of like where this is all headed uh, this has been a confusing time for a lot of businesses and if that's actually what i think shifts you from just someone taking orders on a call to someone who is more of an advisor it's the ability to yes solve the immediate problem but then also put that problem into context in a way that gives some sort of a hint about what's next. I, 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 it's, I've never really thought about it this way, but the more that I think about what you're saying, there's, there's kind of like three and Doug, you'll probably either uh, you'll have something to say on this. There's probably there's reps, there's reps that are, are just aspirational sellers. They sell you this great, huge story that, mm -hmm. Hey, we're going to, you know, you, you, your your life is going to fundamentally change, and 
that usually ends really well, really badly for the customer. Sure. Then you, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got your urgent care sellers that are like, hey, I'm going to solve your problem today. And that usually bodes well for the customer for the short term, but doesn't bode well for the customer in the long term. And it also hurts the rep. And then you've got the ones that are in the middle that, like you said, have been really good at connecting the dots. And those are probably your highest margin sellers. Your, but but I, I really just haven't, I haven't thought about it that way, which is actually quite interesting. So, so here's a, here's a takeaway that I got. And, it, and, it, and it's fascinating because it connects to how do we get information from salespeople? How do we support salespeople? How do we support the organization? I think, I think great salespeople. Now, there are some people who are salespeople on their way to some other executive position, but there's a lot of people that they're salespeople. They're really yeah. good. They operate extraordinarily well within context, but they're not context setters. They're not context creators. If you give the rep the context, and again, this is where I hate military analogies, but the idea of, you know, the commander's intent, here's the hill, you know, here's the mission. Here's why the mission is important. Here's when the mission needs to be done. Here's what happens after the mission is done. When those things are clear, you unlock the genius of your frontline, et cetera. I think the same thing is true with sales. When the context elements are clear, they become great facilitators. They become great leaders. They become great. One of the things that makes them so good is they're not tied into the theory or, or the behind the scenes of what the context is. They're, you know what, actually, because it's a concept I'm going to bring in in just a minute. They're sense makers, right? Mm-hmm. They help you make sense of the context. But what marketing does, and I think, where marketing serves its long-term and balances to the short-term is if you create that context. So like this post creates an awful lot of context that as a rep, I could, you know, bringing this to me not only gives you that picture, you know, not only delivers something of value to the market, but it also gives me a lot of context that now helps me use a reference material, you know, as a rep, to begin right. to make sense of things so that we can apply and, and, and share the why. Am I, am I making any sense or am I just seeing things that aren't there? No, I think that makes a ton of sense. I, and I, I think the other lens to look at this from is the buyer, right? Because you don't just wake up one day and decide you're gonna go buy some software. Like you're buying software because you need a change in your organization. Either or anything else for that matter, because people do buy things other than software, despite I, what the two may believe. That's very, very true. Thank you for that nudge. Um, but yeah, you make a purchase because you wanted to alter your life in some way. Uh, and it may not be, you may be, you know, not realizing that in the beginning, you may just say, hey, look, I, my, my sweater tour, I need a new sweater. Um, but I think that like, at every purchase, there is the possibility of sort of a new path forward. And the that that moment can be a really powerful one for buyers, uh, where they're, they're, that purchase is opening up to other all sorts of other opportunities. And so the context, I think, helps them too. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, you know, if, if it really was, a, hey, I tore my sweater, so I have to replace my sweater, then we would, you know, everyone would be wearing gray sweaters because, right, but it's, oh, no, no, I don't like that sweater. No, no, I, no, no, I don't want to buy from them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everything that you do, I, I think, it, you know, it is a statement. Um. I do want to speak from the buyer's perspective because here's, I, I think 
I think if you go back 20 years ago, a buyer was frustrated because they were dependent on salespeople that didn't always have their interest in heart sure. and, 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 and they couldn't access information. Bam, inbound revolution. I can now navigate my own journey. Um, then the problem became there was so much content um, and finding good content was a problem. Overwhelmed with content, yep. finding good content problem. I don't think that's a problem anymore. I still think there's a lot of not particularly useful content, but I think the buyer today, their challenges is there is so much mm-hmm. really good, insightful content. So much. Yeah. And none of it agrees with each other. That's true. Right. And, and you know, so Gartner's doing a lot in this area with, you know, the, the challenger group of, you know, the CEB group that Gartner bought, but Gartner is doing all this around that frustration level and how like the, one of the, one of the very common frustrations is the, the decision process gets heavy because as we do more research around it, we find more insightful stuff that all disagrees and we just can't figure it out. So we go spend our time on something else. Um, how, How are you, I know you guys have to be dealing with that problem. How are you guys addressing that? How are you getting, how do you get content to, to stand out and create context in this noisy, noisy world? And again, noisy, good yeah. noise, not just, I mean, it used to be just do good content. Yeah, now yeah. I would say that's not even enough. Yeah. I mean, I, well, there's two things in what you just laid out. And one is just the, yeah, the proliferation of content and choices and, you know, there's more than we could ever consume. And so how do you find the right mix for yourself? But the other thing is this idea of you could find a story or an article that agrees with whatever you want it to agree with, right? You could find an article saying content is dead and advertising is the way, way forward. You could find this a different article at the same exact time saying the exact opposite. Um, and so in many ways, we are kind of like cherry picking as consumers, the content that makes the most sense for us. And we see that across all facets of life. Um, I think that that's, that's a challenge because the, the sources of truth are harder to come by, right? Even review sites, it used to be that like, you know, you could only rely on the company to tell you if they're good or not, but then all these review sites came up and we could find, you could hear from people and you can, um, you could get, see the five star, the two star, the one star and Amazon had all of this as well, but the, you know, review sites are getting gamed now. And so companies like Amazon have entire teams dedicated to like rooting out gamified reviews on their site. There, there's like a policing that has to happen to, to, you know, give someone an algorithm and marketers will figure out a way to, uh, to bend it in their favor. Uh, so I think that I'm, I'm not giving you a solution to this because I do think it is a challenge. Like, I think it is an unsolved challenge that we're going to have to figure out. We've gone from lack of information being what held us back to too much information and to a lack of trust of some of that information. And so we have to think about where the pendulum sort of swings next uh, and how we create the new standards of what's objective um, in today's world, whether you're buying a sweater off Amazon or a piece of software. So I have a theory of a solution. Let's have it. I think um, 
I think it's a back to basics, back to first principles. When, when, you know, what, what, what was the foundation of inbound? There are these blogs and, you know, and if you, you know, the, the origin myth of HubSpot, um, right. So you, you now have reached Spider-Man status. You have an origin myth um, is, you know, Brian and Darmesh and Brian learning about all the traffic that Darmesh had gained yeah. from his, from his blog. But Darmesh wasn't blogging for a business reason. Darmesh was blog. Darmesh was sharing insight and something of value to people that was, you know, it was of objective value. It had a point of view, yeah. but, but it was of objective value. Um, then, you know, so, so I think if you look in the early stages of, of inbound, it was very solved for the customer, mm-hmm. put your, put your business interest to the side, share, um, and, and help people understand their situation better. It's more about helping them understand themselves than understanding your product or service or understanding even the solution set. I think as we started seeing the business numbers show itself and we started adding metrics to it, this is where, this is my um, contractually, I'm required to bring up good arts law. Whenever you take a good measure and you turn it into an objective, it stops being a good metric. Um, We started, we started blogging for business. Yeah. We started creating content for business. The algorithm started coming in. Google started looking and is it tried to monetize? And we're now, we now live in this, everybody obsesses about intent and this whole post intent and high intent and intent data, this and that. And, and what was interesting is I think we created better overall content when we had no idea what the intent <laughs> of the reader was. Yeah. We were just solving for something. And what's interesting is I think one company makes sense of things better than any company out there. And they've been doing it for decades and it's progressive insurance, Hmm. right? If you call up progressive or you go to progressive site, they will show you what their price is and what their competitors prices are. And sometimes their competitors are less expensive than them. And you know what? People still buy from progressive when progressive number is less expensive because it's like, okay, these people aren't going to lie to me. It's trustworthy. Right. Right. And, and, and so how often are we creating content? How often are we sharing something that indicates we're not the right ones for this, that, that right. maybe somebody else is? What if you, you know, what if you wrote that piece that said, you know, in this case, ABC company, our competitor is a better solution for this. Cause you know, I mean, if you've got a really good competitor, yeah. they've got to be better at you for something. Yeah. Or right? here's where we're weak, you know, here's, yeah. here's where we're not as strong. I think right. that makes, yeah, I think that's true. I think there is, People have gotten really good at sniffing out inauthenticity. And um, I think that's the currency today is, you know, how do we make sure that there is that trusting relationship and how do you do that at scale, right? Because you can trust an individual at a company, but then if that individual's colleague is off, you know, doing nefarious stuff, uh, that, that ruins sort of that relationship at scale. So you know, I think we're going to have to find, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot internally at HubSpot is it's funny you brought up metrics. Like we're trying to figure out like, what is a a true customer success metric look like? Like we know what revenue metrics look like. We know what marketing metrics look like. How do we actually determine if a customer is doing well on our software? And if we truly believe that a successful customer feeds back into a successful HubSpot, then that should be the number that we're going after. That number is- Just don't is bring back the Chi Index. Just don't do that. 
No. Oh my God. I forgot all about that. <laughs> wow. I think you were the first person who has uttered chi index in five, <laughs> six years. Oh, sorry. I couldn't help myself. That's no, that's that um, also got game, got gamed. I mean, that's the uh, thing is like, I think your point is actually really, um, well, really solid that, that sometimes as soon as you turn a metric into an objective, that opens the door up to game it. It, 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 it's fascinating because we, we, we talk about, well, we got to create trust, high trust, con, high trust content at scale. Mm -hmm. but, then we're, but then the first question that somebody asked, that some executive asked is, well, how is this content going to lead to sales, lead to increased sales? Yeah. But then we ask you to trust us on the content, which once you ask the question, how does this content lead to sales, right? And, and, and I'm not saying that, 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 you know, at some point, yes, it has to influence sales. Yeah, but you begin to look at it, at, you know, at that level. We we had actually a client that I talked to today where um, they were talking about this piece of content that they wanted to show this, but we have to be careful because we don't want to give any of our secrets away, you know, because we don't want, you know, yeah. we don't want our competition to steal. And I said, look, we're in a different world today. If you're creating content that someone doesn't want to steal, that's what you should be worried about. Yeah, right. The content, like you know, you're not going to generate trust or something like that by not putting something out on the table. So, so my suggestion is. It's like the golden rule, right? Why don't we treat our customers? Why don't we give our customers the respect that we want our, our customers to give us? And I think if we start looking at that um, and, and we started looking at to scale in the macro. Yeah. And I think, again, what's happened is we're starting to look at it as how does this email scale? How does this scale? How does that scale? As opposed to how does this overall, you know, how does this overall approach scale? And the mix of that is of course going to change over time. That, that, that's yeah. my theory on it. Mike had a good, yeah. um, like the spectrum argument that Mike was making for sales. I think you can make for marketing too, yeah. which was like, if you only create content that is designed to drive numbers, that's too far at the end of one of, of that scale. If you're on the other end of that, where you're just creating content for the sake of content that has no connection to your business, also a problem. So there's this happy medium in the middle that I think we people need to strive for. I'm, I'm, I wanna, in, in the closing minutes, I wanna take this in a different direction, but Mike, I know I warned you that I was gonna dominate this whole thing. You, any, any questions or thoughts that you wanna share before I ask Megan, if we can take this in a really different direction? Now, uh, I mean, I've got a bunch of stuff written down, but uh, no, no, no. Go, go, I, 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 Maybe it's a conversation for another day, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, so if you're okay, I'd like to take this conversation in like a really different place because, you know, as I mentioned, you are one of the best people in the world that I know. And I, and I mean that sincerely. Um, and, and, I, and I know you, so I, I, I think I know you well enough to know that it's going to be okay. Um, but we are in a really, really crazy world right now. And, and I know that I'm aloof, right? It's, compared to the vast majority of people I know, I'm pretty good at just like not letting all the other stuff going on in the world yeah. get in the way of, of what I'm doing at, at the time. And I got to tell you, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I, I have more, why am I doing this moments? Now I've had that at times, just the entrepreneurial, why am I doing this? Right. You yeah. Know, right. But I mean, I've had more like, like, like seriously, why, why am I doing this? Like, yeah. um, and, and, and I, and I know from, from some of the, the conversations we've had and, and, and things like that, I know that you think about that. I know that you, I know that you don't only talk the talk, you walk the walk. Um, and I think what HubSpot has done um, and the way that they've embraced the, you know, 
the issues around the pandemic, the issues around Black Lives Matter, the issues around diversity. Um, I think it was someone at HubSpot that said diversity is asking somebody to the party. Inclusion is asking them if they would dance. Um, yeah. I've never forgotten that. That like like that like totally rocked my world. That you know that whole that whole piece. How I know I'm struggling with it. So I got to imagine that that it's a whole bunch. How do you keep doing this at the end of the day job, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a mission, but it's still a, like, how do you, yeah. how do you deal with that? How are you dealing with that? What's your thoughts on that? I hope it's okay that I went in yeah. that direction. No, I, I, I'm thinking about it a lot. Um, so not, it's unsurprising that you're thinking about it as well. You know, I think that there's a few things going on. Um, one, work and home life are blending. Um, and two, it is a traumatic, traumatic time for a lot of people. I say that with, without even the slightest speck of, of hyperbole, it is, there is trauma going on right now. And, you know, that creates these really interesting situations where like, I wrote about this once where, you know, you, you may have a member of your team who you see them on a Zoom and you say, hey, how you doing? How was your weekend? And then they say, oh, fine, great. And then you notice on, on social media that they're like really struggling and they're really going through something. And reconciling that, that personal self with that work self and realizing that like because of uh, the situation right now with, with everybody being home, like there is no line anymore and trying to work with people and understand the, the entirety of their context. That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot to do all at once. Um, and I think, you know, how you get through it is for yourself. I think you have to know that there, your life is layered and there are, there are, you have to keep that balance right, you know? So if you are feeling like you're not having enough of an impact on society in your, in your nine to five job, like what are you doing outside of that to balance that out? If you're feeling like you um, are spending too much time on Zoom calls, like how are you stepping away from that? And so I think it, there's a discipline now in sort of managing your own experience and your own contributions to the world that we're sort of an afterthought before this time. And then you add on to that, realizing that everybody else is doing the exact same thing and trying to care for them and trying to celebrate milestones. And then on the flip side, comfort people who are really going through some hard stuff through a screen. Like that's just hard times right now. And I think we just need to, recognize that and do our best to to see that in of itself as mission and to uh try to think about both the you know zoom in and, and zoom out and try to think about that moment in time that one interaction this conversation you and i are having right now as meaningful in its own right and as something that you can control and immerse yourself in and make good out of uh and line up those specs and those spots of moments throughout the day to get through hard times. So, so you're lucky because you're at a company that, that 
deeply understands the individual. I, I think what Katie's been doing, and I'm no, and I know, I almost feel guilty to say what Katie's been doing because I understand no, how much of what Katie is doing as a team of, of, of people. There are a lot of people at, that are at different companies or at small companies that don't, that don't have the support. So here, here's my question for you. As, as someone who manages and leads a team, um, where your people are experiencing this. And, and I think what, what adds on top of it is I mean, people are scared. Um, yeah. People are scared that if I, that if I live my values um, and I get fired, I'm not going to have a job because however many min- millions of people, you know, at, at least yeah. 12 months ago, if I lived my values, unemployment was at like 4%. And so I you could convince fire, yeah. myself that, and you know, and, and you look at it, and you listen to all the people at Facebook who write their anonymous posts about how they're, you know, disturbed by what they're doing. And you're like, well, you could quit and you'd be hired in a nanosecond, but you're afraid to quit. Right. So you have all those things going on. What, what type of like, what's the advice or what's, what's the, the direction or something that you're giving your team for how they, you know, to, to put it into a little bit more of a, yeah. What do you do basis? Because I, I know there's a lot of people that just don't have that opportunity to get that. And, I, and I'd hate to miss that opportunity here. Yeah, I mean, I think for every individual, you got to find that thing that gives you purpose, right? Is that thing that gives you purpose that you are an exceptional dad, and you will do everything for your, your, everything you need to do for your family. And that may mean staying in a job that you don't like. Is that purpose that you want to, to be an advocate and you want to voice, uh, raise your voice against, you know, some of the, the, the injustices that you're seeing. I think you need, like every individual has to find that thing and it may be that there's multiple things, but right now, like, I think we got to kind of pick like one or two things that we're going to really lean into and that we are going to sacrifice things for. Uh, and, you know, I think that saying that to your point, I'm really glad you raised that. Like, this is a, a very pri- privileged place to be able to say, like, I could walk away from a job if I needed to. Um, not everybody has that choice, but even people who don't have that choice I still think it's worth kind of digging into yourself to find like, if that's not the choice that you can make, what can you do that will make you feel purpose? Uh, and maybe it is staying in that job to, uh, to support a partner or a family that, that is depending on you. Uh, but that's all, we, that's all we have, right? Like that's the thing, the thing that separates humans from you know, every other animal in the world is that sort of search for significance and meaning in what we're doing. And um, I think without that, it's a really hard road, hard, empty, vacuous road. And so I can't answer that for everybody, but when I talk with people um, and we often talk, whether it's friends or colleagues, or um, I would talk with strangers about this, uh, I think it comes down to that, like putting the work in to try to figure out what is that thread that's gonna pull you through this? And it's usually, some sort of purpose. Yeah. And so, and I, I, I love everything you just said. And I agree with Doug, like you're one of those people that truly walks, walks the walk. And I've, I've followed you on social media for a long time. Um, and 
I think it's a, I think it's a little bit, I don't want to say unfair, but I, I also do appreciate the fact that you said um, that you, you feel like you're in a, in a privileged workplace. I think HubSpot obviously has a phenomenal culture, but you're also dealing in a high stress environment where, you know, people are expecting you to grow and you've got 80,000 demanding companies out there that expect you to never, ever, ever you know, have issues and they expect your product to continuously get better. Um, and I like in my daily life, I just try to come back to, you know, doing others as, as you want done onto yourself. And I just see so much on social and, you know, people bashing people about, oh, this sales rep didn't do this, this sales rep. And it's like, guys, like at the end of the day, you got to you, you got to cut some people some flack. Right. So, yeah, no, I think that's right. Mike. I think like, that is the thing that we can collectively do uh, right now is to just realize that you don't know everything that's going on in everybody else's life right now. There's the, a confluence of about a dozen different mm. real crises that are happening right now. And you get a snippet of it. I get a snippet of it, at, you know, at work with colleagues, you get even less when it's just, you know, that moment on social media. And so yeah, if there's anything that we can do to help each other, I think it is just cutting each other a little bit of breathing room here and having a little bit of empathy um, in your, in our interactions. I'll, I'll, I'll share this and then we'll wrap it up because I know we're running out of time or we have run out of time. But um, I, I had, it, it's not quite as crazy, but I had similar experiences in, in, in 2000s. We had 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, um, every day I worked at Merrill Lynch at the time, every day um, yeah. there was some, there was some news article about how Merrill Lynch was screwing somebody. There's nothing worse in life. You know, you, you know, then, then seeing your company on the front page of every newspaper in the world about how bad they are. And yeah. you know, there were, there are all kinds of things going on. It was a time where I was seriously thinking about leaving. I ultimately did leave. Um, and, and I remember someone said to me, they said, you know, here's the interesting thing about defining moments. They're always painful when they happen and you never know they're defining moments until after the fact. Mm -hmm. Right. They're, they're, they're oftentimes that time. And, and so I did something that, that I would recommend everybody to do if, if they haven't done it already. And that is read the book endurance by Alfred Lansing. There's a lot of different endurance books, but this book, it's about the, it's about Shackleton's voyage and, and being stuck on the South pole. And, you know, the, so the amazing thing is they got stuck on the South pole. They, they navigated through some people lost some arms, someone lost a foot, but nobody died. Yeah. being shipwrecked in the South Pole. Um, and it was a journey of every day something else happened. They thought they were going to be saved. Then whoops, no, nothing, et cetera. But in that time, there were there were birthdays and they celebrated birthdays. They, they you know, shot a moose or something or captured a moose and they celebrated. There were good times. There were bad times. And, and I think that we have to, like, I would love it if we could just get rid of the term, the new normal for a while. Let's just you know, let, let, this isn't normal. This isn't, um, th there are certainly implications. There are th certainly things that are norms, but it's almost like, I think when we say the new normal, we're, we're almost trying to say, well, I'm not supposed to feel like I'm in this insanely turbulent time. And I think yeah, you're almost the first thing we have to do is accept it. Yeah. And, and, and you know what? It's okay to be happy on some of those days. Yeah. Like I know there's more guilt right now of somebody like somebody had like a, I saw somebody who got, just got engaged on Twitter. And like, I feel bad sharing this, but the, the love of my life just asked me to marry him. And this is one of the happiest days of my life. And yeah. I thought to myself, 
oh my God, you feel bad to say that? No, it, it, wow. it's okay to say that. And it's also okay to say, you know what? I don't want to talk to anybody in the world and, and, and to know that you'll still get through it. So that's, that's my thought. Um, Megan, any, any closing thoughts um, on, on marketing, life, the cosmos, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah. Restaurant at the End of the Universe, anything? I actually, I really love leaving it there because I think it just articulates really nicely how immense life is and how immense work is and the relationships that we have and how complex and layered they are. And, and even just that fact is kind of settling, right? That just that fact that you can have a moment where there is tragedy and happiness and fear and uh, comfort all bundled up into like one human moment. It's just that to me is grounding in some way. Um, so I love that final point and I think we should just leave it there. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. This has been, been tremendous. So hopefully we can get you a back because I know Mike's got more questions. Yeah, I'll come back anytime. You guys are the best. Thank you very much, Megan. This, oh. is, this is incredible.